welcome to Cream of Caroline, the one and only casserole lifestyle podcast in America. I'm your host, Caroline Hatchett. Today, we are not basic, but we're going back to basics with Bechamel. I'm joined by Hannah Selinger, a food and lifestyle writer and a true Bechamel enthusiast. We're going to talk about the whitest of all the sauces, how to make it, what can go wrong, how to save it, and its seemingly endless possibilities to transform your dinner. And while we're on white subjects, we'll throw in a quick Allison Roman reference at the end. Get on board. It's going to be creamy. What's in the oven? Haddock Rabbit, found on page 70 of James Beard's 1955 casserole cookbook. Rabbit, not the cute kind that hops around, is also known as Welsh rarebit. And it's a dish that's smothered and covered in a creamy, cheesy sauce and then baked. Originally, it was made with that sauce and bread, but you can rabbitify almost anything. For Beard's seafood version, I seasoned two pounds of haddock fillets and placed them in a casserole dish. Then I made a cup of bechamel and seasoned that with some green garlic because I had it on hand and threw in one cup of shredded cheddar cheese. Ooh. Then I poured that bechamel on top of the fish fillets, popped it into a 350 degree oven for 30 minutes and that was dinner and that's what's in the oven. casseroles in the news. Cooking live on Virginia this morning, Richmond's queen of soul food, Lady Sharon, took to the airwaves to share a recipe for her famous chicken and rice casserole. The secret ingredients? Cumin, Lowry's seasoning salt, celery flakes, and gravy browner, whatever the hell that is. And next up this week on Eater, known for its restaurant reporting, proclaimed that tater tots are the ultimate lockdown food. The site pointed readers to tater tot casserole recipes, including Molly Ye's chicken pot hot dish and vegetarian Harissa chickpea hot dish. And finally, even millennials are making casseroles these days. BuzzFeed is reporting on 23 delightfully lazy dinners that start with rotisserie chicken. God forbid you make your own, but anyway, among the 23 selections, chicken parmesan casserole, chicken marsala big ziti, buffalo chicken mac and cheese, one pan chicken burrito bowl, and the easiest chicken pot pie, casserole. And even though it's not a casserole, I really need to shine a light on their barbecue chicken pizza because we all know there's a special place in hell for people who eat chicken on pizza. And that's your casseroles in the news. All right, listeners, today for a very, very creamy episode, we have Hannah Selinger, who is a writer covering the world of food, wine, politics, parenting, you name it. Is there more? Is there more that you can... I, I like to call myself a lifestyle writer. A life, a lifestyle <laughs> writer. Okay, and you, you're a certified sommelier as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you've worked in restaurants before writing. Yeah. Well, I sort of, I guess, writing bookended my restaurant career because I got an English degree from Columbia and then a Master of Fine Arts in writing, and so then I do what you do when you get a master's in writing, which is go work in restaurants. Right. <laughs> you don't know how to market. I mean, everyone said, oh, well, being a, a writer is not like a real thing. Like you can't actually do that for a living. So I believed that. So naturally I went and waited tables. Okay. 
that you're no longer waiting tables. <laughs> I'm not. I'm 40 this August and I'm not waiting tables. So I consider that to be a success regardless of anything else that happens. I'm not a 40 year old server. So. Okay. So yeah. where, where are you in the world right now? I live in East Hampton, New York. I'm in the Hamptons. Oh, that's so, that's nice. I see sunshine behind you. (laughs) I'm in my bedroom. (laughs) I'm actually, I'm hiding from my kids. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. I'm so impressed with your output even more now. (laughs) And now they are here all the time. All the time. So what does, um, what does a coronavirus era day look like for you? Lots of TV for my Mm -hmm. kids. My husband and I have, um, I have a piece coming out in Good Housekeeping actually about, we drafted a marital contract. Um, I am the child of two attorneys. So when things get complicated, I get litigious. um, (laughs) I got litigious with my husband. He's um, uh, chief of staff for a high net worth individual in the Hamptons and he still has to go to work because there's like maintenance issues that render him a, an essential worker. So he was kind of like, look, I have to go in five days a week. And I was like, look, that's not part of my business plan. No. So I kind of just divided up the hours and I was like, you can have like five and a half hours, three days a week to go to work. And I will take eight hours, two days a week, and you can stay home on Tuesdays and Thursdays and have the kids. And I will go into another area of the house and you can just pretend that I'm not here. And Congratulations. I think that will be very useful to me. I wrote it all down and I was like, it's inflexible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what I like to do with uh, all my guests at the beginning of the episode is understand your casserole history, which I'm with two attorneys for parents. I'm very curious what dinner looked like in your home growing up. So my parents were actually divorced and my dad lived in New York and my mom lived in Massachusetts. And so I mostly lived with my mom who was essentially a single parent. And she had this one dish, which really kind of was a casserole, but like a different kind of a casserole. She took these chicken breasts and breaded them in like a traditional egg wash. So egg, always progresso oh yeah and then actually I shouldn't even say this on the air but she used to actually let us I can't believe that she let us do this but she used to let us eat the breadcrumbs (laughs) that had been dipped in the egg and chicken Mm -hmm. this is the 80s and I don't think we knew any better I can't believe that we didn't die um and then she would put them all in a casserole dish and put pats of butter on top and then bake them in the oven. And we probably had that two or three times a week. Yeah. With, it's like homemade shake and bake. Yes, kind of. exactly. With um, steamed broccoli. And sometimes she would put a can of cream of mushroom Campbell's soup on top. Okay. Which definitely would bring it into casserole territory. Yes, definitely. Uh, do you make casseroles for your family ever? My version is very different. Um, I do, well, first of all, I do a lot of chicken pot pie, which is sort of its own brand Mm -hmm. casserole. Um, I do baked pastas, often with uh, some kind of bechamel. Well, you know, we can get into the bechamel story in a bit, but um, I do a lot of cream-based pastas. I do bakes with pastas. 
I use cream sauces as a base for a bake a lot. I do lasagnas with a bechamel. So my take on a casserole has a lot to do with things that I have left in my refrigerator on like day seven of a grocery run when I can't make it out. And like, what can I add to milk, flour, and butter to kind of get me through? And that's my casserole. Yeah, I, which is a very useful skill right now, especially. Yeah. You're like A plus B plus bechamel and a little crispy topping or something. And Yeah, I'm big on the um, breadcrumbs plus butter plus a clove of garlic topped on, you know, a little Parmesan cheese right in the oven. There we go. It's dinner. So, you know, and I... We both went to culinary school, um, and bechamel has always just been part of my life. My mom made bechamel-based macaroni and cheese. I was like stirring it before I even knew what it was, and I probably rattle it off in the course of this podcast fairly often. But you just wrapped an article on bechamel. Uh, you're, you know, you're bringing it back—the whitest of the white people sauces. <laughs> <laughs> it is such a white people. Sauce. <laughs> I, you know, in, in, a, in an era in which like cultural appropriation is, is something that we all need to think about. It's like, no, we, you know, I can own this. We can own <laughs> Bechamel. <laughs> um, but, uh, so tell, so give us a download on like, so what, tell me what exactly Bechamel is. So the base for a Bechamel, um, and also for actually for a Volute, which is the other sort of the sibling sauce to a bechamel, um, the difference being stock versus milk, is a roux. And a roux is just um, equal parts flour and fat. You don't really even have to measure it. You just have to kind of know that it's, you know, say a tablespoon of flour to a tablespoon of butter is traditionally the fat used. In theory, you could use oil, but no one ever does. Um, whisk together until it becomes kind of pasty and then you slowly whisk in in the case of a bechamel milk and that will get very thick and then you can kind of do whatever you want with it with with a bechamel it's a base so you know you can keep it very thick or you can thin it out with more milk and you know you can make it sort of into a gravy you can make it the base for a macaroni and cheese you can you know make it even more thin and make it into like a chowder or a soup base. Um, it's got so many applications that it's really broad and it can hold a lot of different flavors because it is so white. <laughs> and so, you know, in a good way, it's bland on its base and it can hold things and it can kind of become anything you want it to be. Uh, and in that sense, it's, it's a very useful tool that requires so little. It, it actually only has, if you're not counting salt and pepper, which I don't, it's three ingredients, it's flour, butter and milk and that's it. Yeah, no, and that's something I'd never thought about before because again, like in my brain, bechamel is so intricate, intricately woven into my mac and cheese experience. I have like the ratios of milk to flour to butter and like that's my, the bechamel in my mind, but I never thought about starting with a thicker mixture. Right. And building from there. Right. That makes like so much more sense. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it, and it's all about, you know, texture is really important. So it's kind of where you want to be in that level. I love that this is how we're getting very granular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, People so are really specific about how they feel, you know. I make gravy a lot and I use a sort of the bechamel. Well, I use a roux, which is sort of, you know, the 
the base before we even get to the milk as like just an everyday, if I'm making a chicken as the base for my gravy. And sometimes I change my mind about how I want that. Like some days I want like a really thick gravy for my chicken or my turkey on Thanksgiving. And then some days I'm like, you know, I just want it like really just thick enough, just like napping the back of a spoon, like just mm-hmm. enough to just cover it, you know? And I want it like tangy and I want like capers in it. And some days I want, no, like I want like rib sticking thick gravy. I want more flour. I want more fat. And it, it just really just depends on how I'm feeling. But the nice thing about a bechamel or even the base for a bechamel, the roux, is that you can change it. You can do whatever you want with it on any given day. Yeah. And it's so all of the recipes I'm cooking right now are out of a 1955 cookbook from James Beard. And he it's the book is not built like cookbooks we we know today. It's just a block of copy, like a paragraph without the ingredients separated out. And he just assumes a level of knowledge of cooks that right. he just calls it white sauce and assumes that you know that white sauce is a bechamel and right. that you know how to make it. Right. <laughs> well, so, which is, yeah. So the, the recipe I made the other day, we're going to the farmer's market once every two weeks. And so the Friday that I go is our seafood night. Um, and I picked up haddock and I made a bechamel um, loaded with cheddar. And, and this is from his cookbook. I added green garlic because I had it and I don't like things that are so bland, obviously. And literally just dumped it over fish that had been seasoned, threw it in the oven for 25 minutes or something like that. And it was just this lovely, like white, white on white (laughs) (laughs) with little specks of green, but it was so, so damn easy. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing is it's so widely applicable. You really can't, you can't run out of ideas with it. And it's just this one thing at the same time. It's this one skill set that once you kind of master it, you know, it's, it's got all of these different applications. And do you, is there anything that would be bad with bechamel? I was trying to think. Um, I mean, the, I sort of think the fault line with bechamel is if you make it poorly, right? Like if you do the things that make a bechamel bad, if you make a bad roux or if you use cold milk and it becomes gloppy, which is it's easy to mess up a bechamel. It's not like I haven't done it a million times. If you don't know how to save it, right? Like if you don't know, if you don't have a fine mesh, how do you save it? How do you save it? Fine mesh sieve. Okay. Run it through fine mesh sieve. Um, Or uh, that's, that's the easy fix. I mean, you can also, you can whisk in more butter that can save it, but really strain it. I mean, that's the cheat. Yeah. And, and so I am lazy and I use cold milk, but I whisk it so vigorously that, but you are, do you do warm milk every time? No, I don't, but I trust my, I also, if you use cold milk and use a really small amount of it at the very beginning and you, I don't, I don't want to advertise using cold milk because if you don't know what you're doing, you're bound to screw up at the very beginning and that will scare you off. So Use warm milk. Novices out there, do not start making your first ever bechamel by using milk that you have just rescued from the refrigerator. However, I will say that it's not impossible to do this with cold milk, and I do it all the time. I would say room temp. I also don't think that you have to warm your milk to do this because that's just an added dish that you don't want to really deal with either. But 
milk, room temperature milk is really fine. The other thing to be mindful of is that milk scalds, um, which I'm sure you know. And so you have to keep stirring and you want to keep it over a low to moderate heat and you want to stir completely until you're at a boil and the boil will actually set in motion a second thickening. So it's going to thicken and then it's going to thicken again. So you just want to keep sure that you're breaking the seal of the bottom of the pan with the bechamel, otherwise you will get a burnt bechamel. But if that happens, if you do notice that it's burning, then you don't want to actually stir up the I just bottom. Anything, you know, that's sort of a general rule of cooking. If you burn it, leave it. Don't stir the bottom up. Just keep that layer intact. You can save a burnt food by switching pans or by ignoring it until everything's moved around. Yeah. Who knew? All of all of the complications of a very simple sauce. So chowders, literally dumping it over meat. I mean, it's the original yeah. cream of something soup, right? It yeah. serves the same purpose as this, like very uh, industrialized product. You could make your own cream of mushroom soup, right? Yep. Just throwing I do. in I, some. I, I use it um, at Thanksgiving. I use it instead of a cream of mushroom soup in my um, my green bean casserole. Mm-hmm. So with all of these creamy things. The other question I had for you, because again, it can work as a binder in a casserole, as a chowder, as like a topper for meats, as something to really just quickly make vegetables taste delicious. Um, What wine are we drinking with a bechamel dish? I like, uh, there's sort of two rules that you can kind of go with with wine. You can kind of go with complimentary or you can go with contrast. Um, for complimentary, and I, w- I will say I think bechamel is a white wine sauce for sure. From the complimentary standpoint, Chardonnay for sure. You want something round, buttery, full flavored, probably from the American category, although you could go white burgundy. Something with oak that's full and picks up on those buttery notes that you get from the roux from the base. Um, so anything you see from the white burgundy category from France that has some oak contact, California Chardonnay, that would be if you want something that is, that it would be sort of a parallel that mm-hmm. is going to bring out those same notes. There's also an argument to be made that you could go in the opposite direction, which would be contrasting. So to cleanse your palate of those rich, full notes, something that is high acid, zippy, a little bit bright, clean. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand would work well. Some like gooseberry notes, nice clean acid. Also, you could do, um, you could really do, you know, a sparkling. Air. You could definitely do a sparkling wine. You could do sparkling. You could do champagne. You could do sparkling wine from, you know, you could do cava from mm-hmm. Spain, which is Method Champenois. Um, you could do a, you know, Sancerre, which is Sauvignon Blanc from the Loire Valley. Anything with a lot of acid would be a nice palate cleanser. So okay. it's it's a, sort of like how it's an, an all-purpose sauce. Um, it, you could kind of put it into any category with wine too, depending on what you like. And that's that's the nice thing about wine pairing, I think, is that you can kind of drink what you like and make an argument for it. Uh, in most cases, you know, there, there's certain things like asparagus is very hard to pair, but bechamel is very easy to pair. It's got a lot of complimentary notes. There are a lot of different things that you can pick out and say, well, okay, I could make an argument for butter, or I could make an argument for why I would want to have high acid 
to cleanse my palate from all this fat. You know, there are, there are a lot of different directions you could go in with it. Yeah. Cause we're just all, we just all need to drink basically. So I want to, <laughs> there's a lot of drinking going on right now. Liquor but, sales are up. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and so you're, you're writing about wine. What else is in, what else is in the docket for you? What are some of the stories that you're excited about? I have a piece coming out about um, Wally, the movie. <laughs> okay. My my three year old of all the movies in the world, my three year old is obsessed with Wally, the apocalyptic film. Yeah. About, yeah. <laughs> We're watching it over and over again. And, and and that's wonderful that you're mining uh, your children's movie habits. First, I this is a major skill. <laughs> I, I've been using every microscopic like thing that happens. I just take a lot of notes. So I pitched that to the cut for New York magazine. Um, they have this vertical called, I think about this a lot. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I finally sold a piece to them. So that's in the works. I have a piece coming out, um, for eater I'm working on about, um, how we kind of, don't pay attention to those recipes on the backs of boxes. Mm -hmm. So that's something I just sold this week. And what else am I working on? I'm working on a wine piece about Sonoma for wine enthusiasts. And I'm working on a piece about little Debbie cosmic brownies. <laughs> is that, is that a thing? Well, it is for me. <laughs> what are cosmic, what are little Debbie cosmic brownies? They're, um, they're like, do you remember the fudge brownies with the walnuts? Yeah. They're like those, but they've got like little colored things on them. I just started like getting all these PR, you know, I get these PR emails and I got one about like nostalgic 90s foods. And then I like went into this wormhole where I was like, I need to order these. And then I ordered like six boxes and I've been sitting at my computer eating them like, <laughs> like a crazy person. I said, I have to like sell a story about this or this is just like a waste of time. Right. Oh, that's fun. No, my mom, we would go to, we would sneak to my neighbor's house and we would get little Debbie cakes there, or I would trade for them in the lunchroom because we were not allowed to have any kind of snack cake. We were, we were allowed to have like one, but my mom would like ration them and she like counted every single, I mean, it was draconian. I'm sort of stuck in this weird moment in my life because I'm turning 40 I grew up in this age of these gross 90s snacks, and then I was raised in this CSA era, and now I'm raising children in a pandemic where everyone's eating garbage. So I kind of, and I'm a food writer where I passionately care about sourcing and the way we eat and what we eat. But right now I'm kind of like, let's just have pasta with canned spaghetti sauce. I do not <laughs> care. I can't eat food anymore. I'm at a crossroads. So little okay. Debbie cakes it is. <laughs> I'm into it. And you know, and bechamel is a nice in, in between. Yeah. In between zone for that at least. Yeah. I think part of what I've been thinking of in the last week, especially with this sort of Allison Roman moment, if we're going to call it that, is that like, you know, there was, there's a moment of reflection with all of this navel gazing in the food community about how like seriously we take ourselves you know all of this oh this food has to be sourced this way and like oh i only get coffee from this place and alicia kennedy wrote this kind of brilliant piece about you know it's it's not about like sort of the bourgeois fantasy of all of this it's about like actually protecting what it is we buy and and we sort of went in the wrong direction with it right now i'm not 
buying the things that were like lovely and, and the things that sort of made my kitchen more beautiful and bespoke and all that stuff. I'm buying the things that were, that are necessary. And that kind of makes me reevaluate all of these other things that I was using, but not using. Um, it's sort of a moment of recalculation, I think in the kitchen. And for a lot of us who have been cooking for, you know, I've, I've been a cook serious and not for 20 years. And it's, it's a moment for me to kind of sit back and think about all of these things and, and what I really need and, and what I should be spending my money on. And um, who we should be supporting. With, and with- who I should be supporting. Like, I should be spending real money on well-sourced vegetables and fruits and animal protein. And maybe it doesn't matter if the, the you know, the canned beans are the best canned beans, you know? Like, that right. kind of stuff probably doesn't really matter. Anyway. Yes. There's, there's my Alice and Roman mention. No, we needed yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Right? We needed, we needed one. I know as everyone who's not in the food world texted me for my opinions, which I offered freely, but, yes. um, but it's, you know, if it has, um, if it's giving everyone a moment to reflect, uh, one of the things that struck me that she said in the past is that she has no culture. And that's something that I identify with. Um, I come from the muddest of the mutt American families with very few recipes that we like made traditionally. I grew up cooking from magazines and cookbooks that my mother brought into my home. And I real I realized this week that I was I've really just been shaped by white food editors. Yeah. <laughs> and here I am in the same position. And, you know, and I and I try to do my best and, and write about all kinds of different people and cuisines and give people credit. But it was it's the first time that I I realized that my entire culture um, of food and consumption has really been almost almost exclusively shaped by by editorial like you know. by design though I mean right. that's, somebody designed that the thing about when when she says that it's disingenuous though because Allison Roman is Jewish you know right <laughs> I'm Jewish I would never say I have no culture because. Whether or not I choose to, look, Alison Roman loves to say, and I don't mean to be on the Alison Roman train here, but like Alison Roman loves to say, oh, I love tinned fish. Like, well, what's tinned fish? Tinned fish is like a very Eastern European. Appetizing, right. Yeah. Look, that's cultural. That I don't like tinned fish personally, but that is the food of my people. I cannot divorce myself from Eastern European Ashkenazi Jew. Tinned fish is cultural for me. That is something that my family grew up eating. She cannot deny that that is a cultural element to her person. So for her to be like, I have no culture, I have, you know, that's just a lie. I mean, I'm sorry. She wants to come across as like, you know, blonde from nowhere. She's not. She's she's Jewish. Like, right. And I have, culture. and I have culture. I'm from the South. Not, I, right, 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 not, right. That's not a condemnation of you. I'm just saying that like, you know, that's just not true. Like, it's just not true. So, yeah. you know. She's, I don't know if she's trying to like sort of make herself a blank slate so that she can create whoever she wants to create. No one truly has no culture, but Jewish people certainly don't have no culture. You know, we right. are an amalgamation of Eastern European culture. I mean, I don't like a lot of the foods that I grew up with, and I definitely try to divorce myself from some of the things that I grew up eating, but it certainly doesn't mean that I don't own it. I have right. to own it. Yeah, no, and that's, I I think the way that 80s parents cooked, or at least 
in, in my home and then my grandmother's home, it really became this 1950s magazine. It just became like a, a very magazine oriented approach. Yeah. So while I was surrounded by traditional foods, it's not something that I was really interested in until, until my thirties, probably. I think that fifties cooking was aspirational too. It was, it, there was something easy about it. There was something, you know, it, it was. I mean, it continental and it all, and it also incorporated all of these global touches, right? Yeah. So you have your cream of whatever, right. a little bit of curry powder, and then you were, you know, you were global. Yes. You global were adventurous. The world. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it, it didn't feel offensive back then. It feels offensive now because we, have you know we have hindsight and we have sort of a, a different perspective it's it's a different world that we're living in but yeah. that, you know now you have to recognize it now you have to own it right that's the difference and i said this as a white person i you know i'm not in the same pickles i mean i'm sure i've said things that <laughs> would get me in trouble but i also don't have like fifty thousand instagram followers no. to like call me out on it so no, and we can, and we're we're standing behind bechamel today, so we got it. Bechamel, we white got it. Food. <laughs> oh, Hannah, thank you so much. It's great to meet you in person, and not yes. or in person ish, <laughs> much closer than just in a, in a Facebook. Uh, you oh, know. by the way, I should mention that I got trolled for that bechamel piece. I, I'm in this. I'm in this Facebook group for like recipe sharing. Okay, and I posted someone had posted about a lasagna. So I was like, Oh, uh, I actually just wrote a piece about bechamel and I posted the piece and this guy, I, it's a group that I'm a mod in. So the group, this guy was like, actually there's a mistake in this. There was a mistake in it. I had, there was Bernays was posted as a mother sauce, which should have been fact-checked anyway. Um, this guy posted this lengthy tome about how I don't know anything about mother sauces and I, he, I should take it from him because he has gone to culinary school. And I was like, should I even write back to him? Cause I did, I did go to culinary school. And then I was like, no, you know what? I don't like need to be mansplained to. He obviously hasn't even Googled me. And so I deleted the comment mm -hmm. cause I was a mod. And then I kicked him out of the group because he kept, <laughs> he kept doing it. So then he sent me, First, he sent me a message and I was like, he was like, oh, I see what's going on here. You don't like people telling you you're wrong. And I was like, delete. Then he went to the website where the article was posted and posted a lengthy comment about how right, I don't know what yeah. I'm talking about. And I was like, no one reads the comments, so who cares? Then he sent me another message telling me how he had gone to the site and sent a comment and like how I was going to lose my job. I was like, and that's not really how freelance that's not work. <laughs> <laughs> You're really bored and sad in me. And but thank you for mansplaining bechamel to me. Yeah. We don't need <laughs> mansplaining on bechamel. I think, I think we just cover, I think we just covered it. We got this on lockdown. <sighs> thank you for joining. Good luck with dinner tonight with life, with your thank marital you. contract, um, <laughs> with all of, with all of your work. Thank you. It was really nice to meet you. Bechamel. Who knew all the lessons that you could teach us today? We all have to own what we eat, what we read, who we follow, who we credit, and how we move through this world. But if you need a blank slate for dinner, it's okay to make it easy and whisk together a pot of roux and milk and season it with salt and pepper and keep it creamy. Creamy.